Today's episode of Content to Classroom asks the age-old question, does economics help us do the right thing? I am joined today by Dr. Stephen Day from the VCU Center for Economic Education. He is also a VCU faculty member and an advocate for economic education. And I think this episode is going to be so great for any of you who are fans maybe of Freakonomics or who are trying to incorporate more economics into your classroom, whether that's a content-based history classroom or whether it's an actual economics classroom. This episode is going to be super interesting and helpful because I think that one of the ways to get kids interested in economics is connecting economic decisions with ethical decisions. And so I hope you enjoy today's episode. And as always, please feel free to reach out to Virginia Council for the Social Studies if you have any questions. And of course, reach out to Dr. Stephen Day if you have any questions as well. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Content to Classroom. I am Sam Futrell, and I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Day. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Samantha. So before we get started, I always like to do this. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role at VCU? Yeah, I'm the the director of the VCU Center for Economic Education, and so it's my job here to basically support teachers in Virginia as they as they teach their students about economics and personal finance. And I, I teach introductory economics here at, at VCU as well. But I taught high school social studies for eight years in Raleigh, North Carolina, before I moved here to Virginia. I taught world history, economics, and government. And I actually trained in college for U.S. history, but I never taught it when I showed up as a new teacher, they said, you're going to be teaching world history. And I said, well, there must be some mistake because I didn't study that in school. And they said, right, here's the teacher's edition, go to it. So I have, I have a heart for teachers who are uh, teaching something and sometimes feel under-resourced. So, because that was my experience. Yeah, I know that's never happened to anyone else ever where you say that you're going to take a job teaching one thing and then you just show up and they're like, hey, here's something that you know nothing about. Go do that instead. No, I don't think that they they didn't bait and switch me. They just said social studies and I just assumed mm-hmm. U.S. history. <laughs> and they, I showed up and it was something different. Yeah, classic, classic. Yes. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the role of economics education in ethical decision-making. And I think for me, at least when I think of economics, I think of it as more of a hard science, you know, something that is data-driven, you know, and uh, really something that is based on experimentation that you can study in depth. Whereas ethics to me feels a little bit more squishy. And so I'm wondering if you could just start by saying, how are ethics and economics even related? Well, economics was originally called political economy a couple hundred years ago when it was invented and it really was a moral science. I mean, Adam Smith, who wrote an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth, wealth of nations was a moral philosopher. And his first book was, was, called, was about ethics, right? Um, 
And so, so economics really has its birth in as a moral philosophy. But what happened was economists started to ask, you know, how can we achieve these goals that we want for mankind? For in, and a lot of these had to do with the production and consumption of things. And so, you know, how can we get enough stuff to live? Questions like that. And then that quickly led to how do we achieve these goals? And so that's sort of what economics is today, is saying, how do we achieve goals? And we found out that we can do it analytically. We can, we have these, have these, um, these tools for analysis that can sometimes be kind of quantitative, that can look like a hard science or at least a social science. And so that's sort of how the, that's how that transition occurred. But I think that the ethics is still there. The moral philosophy has not gone away. It's just not always easy to see. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Adam Smith is a, a good example because, you know, if you read Wealth of Nations, there's uh, there's a sentence, and I'm going to butcher this uh, really badly, but it's something about, you know, the butcher, the baker, they don't do things, you know, for the good of others, but they do it for themselves. And really the way that capitalism works best at least if I'm, again, not butchering this argument, is if everyone benefits, you know, if there's this mutually beneficial relationship um, and there is sort of a morality uh, of that, you know, there is a morality to that, at least. So I think it's interesting that you brought up Adam Smith. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny that the Germans have, uh, they have a saying that for this tension between Adam Smith's first book, which says um, ethics comes from people uh, empathizing with those close to them in ever-expanding circles and the closer they get to them and, and the people around you you feel most sympathy for you know and the, the parent tension between that and your your quote about the butcher and the baker from wealth of nations which says that we don't depend on their on their love for me that for me to get my dinner i depend on their self-love that they they want my money the germans call this das adam smith problem which is translated <laughs> the Adam Smith problem. <laughs> I don't really see it as much of a problem personally. I, because I think that a lot of our self, most, the vast majority of our self-interested choices, I think don't have a, a really big ethical weight to them. They're very small questions like, what route am I going to drive to work today? Am I going to drink coffee now or later? What work should I work on right now? Should I do this or that? Um, should I park closer or farther or farther away from work? Um, you know, there are things that on some level do have an ethical weight to them. But um, I, I think that, but all these decisions that affect other people and which affect um, the resources that we use, if we went to every decision saying, well, how, was, how will this benefit this person, that person, the other person, uh, it would be kind of an impossible way to think through things. And so what we do instead is we just make these choices on, well, hey, what seems like the right choice right now? And those choices kind of go into markets in that we uh, make a choice what job to do and how to get paid for it. And markets sort of uh, act as the streetlights for how resources are placed in society. So 
I hope that connects the two a little bit. Now, now there are a lot of examples you can find of a very ethically weighty decisions. Um, one example um, is um, so so my, is uh, this hurricane that we had in Virginia. I don't know which hurricane it was, but my my father in law a number of years back. So he he's a farmer. He grows trees, plants, and shrubs um, at a, a nursery, which they sell to um, which they um, you know sell to homeowners so, and companies so that they can beautify their landscape. And this hurricane wiped out a lot of other plant nurseries and all of their stocks. Uh, but these nurseries that got wiped out were my father-in-law's competitors. And what did he do as it, to react to the situation was he loaded up a bunch of trucks full of trees, plants, and shrubs and took them to his competitors and said, here, this should tide you over until you get your next crop and get your business back open, right? So you don't think of that as being a very capitalistic response, you know, to bail out your competitors. I, I think they probably paid him back over time, but not with interest. You know, it, 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 did not, it did not help his business interest, you know, but he thought it was the right thing to do. Um, should he do that? What was the goal here? Did it benefit the consumer? Did it benefit the other businesses, did, whom exactly did it benefit? You know, so th those are questions inside the business world that we might actually, that we might actually consider. And I don't think the answer is necessarily obvious. You know, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not obvious to me. I mean, that sounds exactly like what you labeled it as, which is a bailout. And I don't really see immediately the benefit of doing that from an economic standpoint well, what right do you think, what, what, do you think that do you think that that's uh something that he should do i mean i think morally that sounds like a great thing to do you know <laughs> i mean i think that sounds like your father-in-law's the nicest guy um but in terms of capitalism i don't know because wouldn't that give him sort of a monopoly if i understand some basic economic principles on he like yeah he would have had a monopoly things. he would have had a monopoly if he didn't keep his competitors in business yeah right exactly on their market share yeah okay so would the sort of decision making that you're talking about here and this economics education would you argue that it was a good decision that he made an economic, like a uh, financially good decision. Well, I think what you what you do is in econ is you say what is the goal, mm -hmm. right? Which is the flip, which is the flip side of saying what is scarce here. There's something scarce, and so we have a goal. We don't have all the resources to meet all of our goals, and so we need to make a choice. And every choice comes with a cost. That's the essence of economics, right there. What I just said. Um, so what exactly is the goal there? Is the goal to let consumers have enough trees, plants, and shrubs to, to beautify their, their, their lawns or after the hurricane to at least start rebuilding them? Is the goal to have a diverse economy with lots of producers and, you know, friends that he would get to see at the, the nurseryman's conferences? I don't know. Um, is it just because he, you know, he thought that that's, you know, he prayed and thought that, that that's what God wanted him to do. You know, these, these are all, we have to have to see what are we actually shooting for here. And what economics does is that it allows us to, 
it allows us to start clarifying those questions and reach, and as if we can, come to an answer efficiently that is actually achieving the goals that we want to achieve and not wandering off and doing something else. Okay. Yeah. So how, just in case, I mean, and I kind of mentioned this in our pre-show, but how does what you're describing here, how does that differ from behavioral psychology, which maybe some people might be just a little bit more familiar with, uh, and that we mentioned earlier, like Freakonomics and other podcasts and things like that? Behavioral psychology looks into getting to the nuts and bolts of how people's brains work and you know, what exactly is going on in your head when you make a choice? Economics historically has kind of zoomed out from that and said, we're just going to look at the incentives that people face. And really, that's, that's the modus operandi. That's the first step in econ. After you decide what's the goal, you say, what incentives do people face? And, you know, in Adam Smith's time, this was a pretty you know, pretty monumental way of thinking about things. You weren't thinking about how the world ought to work or what were the, the, the natural laws that govern the world. It was saying, well, what, you know, what, what incentives do people face? What are they trying to achieve? We look at it from that perspective. Um, so economics and behavioral psychology have come together recently in what's called behavioral economics. And that's when some economists said, hey, sometimes people act irrationally. They don't seem to be doing what they're in, what, monetary incentives would tell us they want to do. And so we can study that. And Samantha, if you as a psychology teacher ever want to team up and do some K through 12 economics and psychology stuff, we can look at what are the incentives that people respond to behaviorally in their brains. By the way, I'll say that um, economics has not been overturned as a result of this, but it does mean that we have to expand our notion of what an incentive is. Right. So if I have um, if I have an ownership bias where I uh, overvalue something that I already own, that's something that behavioral economics tells us, then that might not make sense from a standpoint where I'm trying to get the most money. But it does make a standpoint uh, make a make sense from the standpoint of my feelings. Like I feel attached to this thing that I own. And so that's an incentive where I'm going to provide a higher value for that. That makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So in addition to that, what are some basic economic principles that can be applied to decision-making, particularly when you're trying to make an ethical decision? Yeah. Um, Well, you know what? I think there are three main tools that teachers have that they should kind of go to first in thinking about economic thinking and ethical thinking. And they are the paced decision-making model, which has ethics built into it, believe it or not, the cost and benefit decision-making model. You can find both of these things in your curriculum frameworks where, that have, that have decision-making models or that have economics in them. And then there's the economic way of thinking, which is sort of built into grades kindergarten through third um, history and social studies standards. And then it's also in the civics and economics standards and in economics and personal finance in that class as well. So it goes like this. So the PACE decision-making model basically is a grid where on one axis you have uh, different options that you have. 
And on the other axis, it has criteria, things that you care about. And notice that this is a complex approach to decision-making. There's not necessarily a right answer unless you provide weights to the different criteria. Let me give you an example. So let's say that the, I'll use an example from the curriculum framework actually for local government um, in the government class. What, if we wanna raise tax revenue, what taxes should we increase? And so you have to list out the possibilities. There could be income. Help me out here, Samantha. What are some taxes that we could increase in the local government? Is there an income oh, tax? Sales tax. Sales tax. There you go. Um, um, meals tax. <laughs> yeah, meals tax. I'm like, what taxes do we have? Gas taxes? Um, and alcohol taxes. Yeah, alcohol yeah. taxes. Okay, and then what we do is, so those are our options, and then we have criteria. So what sorts of things do we care about? I'm going to need your help on this one too. So what are some things that we care about when we would be um, weighing our options? I guess if I'm thinking, when you say things that I care about, would this be things that might impact how much money I'm willing to give towards taxes? Yeah, and we need a role. We're policymakers. We're the city council or the, or the general assembly. Yeah. Okay. Well, one thing that jumps into my mind is maybe some people might want a higher alcohol tax because they might think that, you know, alcohol is immoral in one way or another, or that it should be taxed higher because it's not necessarily the same as food, where it's something that you might need every single day and every person needs it. Yes. Yeah, so we've got our blue laws here in Virginia. And so, and that certainly is, comes from an ethical standpoint where we might want to it might be a, a better tax because it would discourage behavior that, that we don't like. Um, I'll, I'll throw in another uh, possible criterion, and that could be um, if it raises more money, right? There's a, I think here in Richmond, we have a boat tax that raises something like a few hundred dollars a year. It's almost non-existent. And so, you know, that could, that could be a tax, a boat tax, but it wouldn't get us any money and that wouldn't help us achieve our goal. Yeah. So, I mean, we could think of some more. So is it fair? Is it regressive or, pro or progressive, this tax? Right. So you notice though, that when we, that this is a complex ethical decision-making model because we're not trying to maximize on just one thing, right? The, our goal, actually our goal that we're, I, I think ostensibly trying to maximize is, is revenue for the city because we want to fund schools or whatever it is that we're trying to fund. Um, but we have these other ethical considerations, maybe you call them constraints. I'd probably call them considerations. And so you have to give those things a weight as well. So, hey, if one of the points of that podcast episode today are how does ethics enter into economic decision-making, it's that we have our goal that we're trying to maximize and we're trying to be really precise about how we analyze that. But we have other tools like a, like the PACE decision-making model, which allows us to bring in other ethical considerations into that. But you notice the problem with PACE, though, is that the weights that you give these things are kind of arbitrary. If you've ever done one of these things in a classroom, yeah, your students are like, well, how do I know that this is the best thing? And I came out with an answer that I didn't want. And you kind of are adding numbers to the things. And um, that's, where, that's where things become really dicey. Because usually in economics, what you do is you try to maximize using maybe a graph or something along one, uh, there's one thing you're trying to get to. And, you, and, and, our, and our analytical tools are really powerful for doing that. 
But as soon as you start throwing other things into the mix, it can be more difficult. There, there's other ways you can add it onto a graph. You can add it as a constraint. You can put it on an axis. You can make it part of a benefit. There's other ways you can add it in. But K through 12 teachers have the paste model <laughs> or the supply yeah. and demand model if you're doing that. That's really interesting. And I think could be used in a variety of different ways. I love the the way of applying it to local governments and talking about taxes and decision-making um, from governments. I think it would be interesting to look at it even in historical scenarios too and consider kind of almost backwards, like what was their goal? What might they have considered as yeah. sort of these constraints or these considerations? Um, in terms of the criteria that they were establishing for this model. And you know, the thing is that one thing that I think is really fascinating is that if you are a history teacher and you start applying these decision-making models to the past, you might be surprised at, to find out how little we actually do this in history education. Um, I did this once. I was I started to go back and think, okay, what are some some decision making models I can apply to my lessons for history? And I found out, man, I know a lot about what people in history did, but I don't know necessarily a lot about what were their other options and why they didn't do them and what were their incentives. And you know, when we're doing military history, if someone ever loses a battle, we say, well, they did this foolish thing. And if someone wins a battle, we say, well, they did this wise thing. But I think that's a kind of a silly way of looking at, I mean, people were operating in a lot of uncertainty, trying to get some stuff accomplished and it didn't always come off, you know? So actually that's a challenge there to teachers that might be listening to this is that try using either a paste model or the cost benefit decision model and apply it to something that you know in history. It can really help your students think a lot more about contingency in history rather than history is this thing that just kind of happened because it was supposed to happen. It can help students think about, well, what else could have happened, you know? And man, that's a challenge because it's difficult for teachers and students enough to learn what did happen <laughs> when you start adding in what are some things that didn't happen. But I think it adds, you know, it makes us better historians. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think this could be really interesting too. Um, I do some model UN simulations in my class. And so the students are, as they're simulating the UN and we're gonna be doing this uh, with the EU next year, it would be really interesting to apply that to decisions that they're making as you know these ambassadors and uh, for current events or even past events. Um, and like you said, I think, you know, it's easy to sort of put historical situations into black and white and say, okay, well, this person did this thing, but then to actually go into the study of why they did it and what their other options are, I think adds a lot of nuance and adds a lot of humanity to the actual decisions that are being made. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I didn't fully answer your previous question though, is what other tools are there? Can I say yeah. it real fast? Yeah, go, go ahead. Because I, I think we're, Teachers in Virginia are, are blessed in that there's some pretty good tools just in the curriculum frameworks. So they should look at them because you, if you, um, you know, skill one H for social studies classes, decision-making models, it's got PACE, which I talked about. It also has a much simpler one, the cost benefit analysis. And every level of kid can do this. And I'll tell you what, I've been doing a lot of deep reading lately about ethics and economics. And one thing that I've 
conclusion that I've come to is that cost-benefit analysis actually covers a lot of the ground ethically and analytically when you're trying to analyze decisions. That was redundant analytically when analyzing decisions, but you get the point. Um, there's a, so you can have even really young students say, what are the, the good things about this choice? What are the bad things about this choice? And if you, I think teachers should get in a habit of just being ready to pull out this cost benefit model for whenever they encounter something. Because a lot of times we, for choices that we like or people that we like in history, we try to pile on the benefits and we say, this choice is good. This person is good. But we don't, we don't often think like, oh, but there are some drawbacks about this and what might they be. And it's an extremely flexible model because you can put different ethical considerations in the cost side or the benefit side. We should do this thing because it's the right thing to do. It's, you know, this, or over here, maybe this, it would, this, it would benefit people, it would achieve our goals, but it might not be the right thing to do. So it really adds some kind of some difficulty and again, nuance into, into the studying history and social sciences. The, the last thing that's, that's in the standards, you'll find it a lot in the K through three standards, is just what we call the economic way of thinking, which is, there's six points. I'll list them off real fast. One, because of scarcity, we need to make choices. Two, every choice has an opportunity cost. Three, people respond predictably to incentives. Four, people's incentives are affected by systems and rules and institutions. Number five, in a voluntary trade, both sides expect to benefit. Number six, the consequences of our choices lie in the future, so there is risk. And I know that might sound like a little bit of a canned answer, but those are, those are the tools that economists use to really get a lot of power in analyzing the things we observe in the world. And Yeah, I think that it would be interesting if you're looking at a cost-benefit analysis, are there any sort of topics in U.S. history or maybe even in world history that sort of jump out to you as being like really easy applications for um, using this in the classroom? Well, you know, a classic one that's really ethically charged is the, um, you know, the, the putting, uh, is uh, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, which on the benefit side appeared to have this big benefit of potentially ending the war. And on the cost side has this extreme ethical problem with it, you know? So you can look at, you can look at that. You can look at, um, I mean, anytime that there's, anytime there's a choice, um, again, the world wars, you know, should the United States enter world war one, um, and you can look at current events right now. What, what should the United States government do with respect to this Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? You can see that, you know, there was a European country, was it Poland or Slovakia, wanted to send warplanes over there. This might be kind of channeled through NATO or not through NATO. What's the, um, what's the United States stance on this? So there's a, a cost-benefit analysis there as well. Anytime you encounter a choice. In fact, I'd argue that, that human beings, we go through all day doing little cost-benefit benefit analyses in our heads because we make choices just constantly. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and kind of 
also goes into my next question, which is, you know, I think you can apply this to individuals. I think you can apply this on a large scale level as well. So, I mean, is this something countries and governments are actively thinking about when they make decisions? Um, I mean, I, for instance, I'm just thinking about the U.S.'s decisions or lack thereof to get directly involved in the war in Ukraine. I mean, are they sort of doing some of these uh, these economical economic thinking um, as they are making these decisions? Yeah. So the the questions you always want to start with, if you're using economic thinking of who's the decision maker, what is scarce, and what are the incentives. So if you just ask the, like war in Ukraine, who's the decision maker? I mean, boy, even that's just enormously complicated. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, Samantha, who is the decision decision maker? Is there an oh, us? Oh gosh. Here? I don't know. I mean, if we're talking about the United States, so hard to say because there's so many people involved in the decision making, you know. And I think the it's hard to even discern from different media outlets, like their portrayal of what's, uh, what the United States government has been involved. But I almost would say yeah. that the United States is following in general what NATO is sort of doing and kind yeah. of the, what the European Union is doing as well. Yeah, but then, you know, but but then who's NATO and who's exactly who's talking about decision? And so, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that to be relativistic. I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's really pretty important to zero in on exactly what decision-making process is happening. You know, to take it away from um, Ukraine and Russia for a moment, just go into government. Uh, one thing that was, the one way that this developed in econ was throughout the 20th century, we had this concept that there were markets and then there were governments. And then we'd say, well, look, well, markets don't, always give us the right outcome because we fail to include all of the considerations in a supply and demand model. And so what we can do then is the government can come in and fix that with either a tax or a subsidy or um, a property right or something like that. But it was, a, uh, it was James Buchanan actually here at George Mason University in the 1960s and 70s and said, well, wait a second, why, why do we treat the markets as if they're imperfect, but we don't look at what the government's decision-making process is. Like, why do we treat the government like it's this omnipotent thing that just works for everybody's good? Like what, I know it's supposed to be that, but how is it actually functioning? And so they, and so they kind of broke down how government decision-making works. And you have sort of at least two groups in that. You've got politicians, got to think about what incentives they face. And you've got the administrate, you got the bureaucracy, like what, what do they face, right? So a politician, they need to please their constituents. And so really their incentives are going to be at putting on it, showing that they're delivering for their voters. And man, so much, you know, you know how in the US Congress always gets such low popularity ratings, but individual Congress people, they get higher ratings with their constituency, right? Because we hate what other representatives are doing because they're not representing us. They're representing their own district, you know? So, 
So that's that's an important thing is to look at is to dig down into like who's making the decision, what incentives are they facing, what's the process, and then what's likely to come out on the other end given all given their incentives. As regards Ukraine and Russia, I mean that's just really hard. You actually have to start thinking carefully about how NATO works, how Vladimir Putin works, how you know how the European Union works, and then. And I don't know how they bang these decisions out. Do you? You teach model UN. <laughs> what, what do you think they're doing? Well, funny enough, uh, we're recording this uh, in March, and this may be airing a little bit later. But uh, tomorrow, literally tomorrow afternoon, I'm recording an episode uh, with the CU Center from uh, Virginia Tech, who are going to be talking about the EU's response to the invasion of Ukraine. So hopefully by after tomorrow, I'll know a lot more. That's going to (laughs) be the goal. Okay, super. So yeah, so what's the goal? goal? Who's the decision maker? What's the incentives that they're facing? What constraints do they face? That's what I want to know from these Virginia Tech people. I'll be sure to ask them tomorrow. Then. <laughs> um, well, we are about out of time, even though I'm so interested oh, no. in this. And I think we uh, I think we will have to make this a two part episode where we maybe dive a little bit into behavioral psychology as well, too. Um, but this was so fun. I um, Stephen, I just want to say before we go, I, I want to thank you for being on the episode. And do you want to tell us a little bit about a, a book that you have coming out? Well, it turns out it's not a book. It's okay. a curriculum. It's a curriculum set. So, no. um, yeah, in, in the past, it would have been a, a book with a bunch of lesson plans, but now we have the internet. So I'm, I'm on the writing team for the economics and social issues revision for Econ EdLink. And some anyone who's taught e- Econ will probably be familiar. If you go to www.econedlink.org, it's just got a ton of curated lessons and teacher-created lessons to teach economics and personal finance. So it's going to be up on that. And that's through the Council for Economic Education. That should drop in December or January of 2023. And what it is, is um, a number of lessons where teachers can access just exactly the sort of things that we've been talking about, including some topic-driven lessons about examples where, you know, pollution, inequality, things like that. And so teachers put it on your calendars in about January, 2023, go look at www.econedlink.org. Look under the topics section and see if you can find the economics and social issues curriculum because it should be out by then. Okay, great. We'll definitely do that. And as soon as it's out, we will add the link to our show notes as well so that people can easily find it. Super. Okay, well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on today. Yeah, it was a blast, and so we ran out of time. I hope we can, yeah, I hope we can cover, we can run it back again in the future. Yeah, me too. Um, so, listeners, I just want to thank you again um, for staying with us today as we dove into some 
really fascinating topic, super applicable to your classroom. Uh, we'll be sure to include in the show notes uh, all of the tools uh, and topics that Stephen mentioned uh, that you can use and apply in your classroom. And don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. I'm Sam Futra, and we will see you next time on Content to Classroom.